0: Listening to the Jim Laird Show
1: on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide, with your host, Jim Laird.
0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Jim Laird Show. My name is Jim Laird. And today on the, uh, on the line, we have Joel Jameson of 8 Weeks Out, and I've known Joel for quite some time. And, and Joel is the guy that I go to for any kind of work capacity conditioning type stuff. And uh, Joel's been in this business a long time. He also has the HRV app, which I started using a few years ago when I, when I wasn't doing so well. And it, it showed me uh, how horrible my nervous system, what kind of trash nervous system I had. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, the main reason I wanted to have Joel on the show today is because Joel had a really interesting uh, blog post on his website uh, relating to his mom, and uh, we wanted to discuss that a little bit, and then we have some questions from Facebook. So, Joel, I'll turn it over to you, and you can tell us a little bit about that blog post that you put up.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, and um, you know, I, I put the blog post out. It was probably the most personal story I'd shared with, with readers and, and people that came to the site, and, and really, it's just about my mom. She's... Uh, she was a flight attendant for many years. She didn't look like someone who was sick. You know, she was uh, normal body weight and didn't have high blood pressure. And didn't have any of the traditional warning signs you see with people that you know have diseases. And and sure enough, one day she was she was in a layover over in Miami and and ended up having a stroke in her early sixties, and it you know really changed her entire life. And you know I think most people when they think of strokes or heart attacks or those sorts of things, they think of people are overweight or people that smoke, people that drink, and people that don't take care of themselves at all and she really didn't fit any of those typical you know um typical describers and she's normal body weight doesn't drink doesn't smoke and you know and sure enough she still had a stroke and and unfortunately it, you know obviously had a negative impact on her on her life so i just wanted to just share that story with people and explain really why it happens because it's, it's much more prevalent than people realize in society
0: yeah and our modern life is is so um stress induced and, and you know like um Robert Sapolsky uh, is an expert on that, why zebras don't get ulcers. And, you know, if you haven't read that book, you can get it on Audible. It's, it's a pretty long book, but Audible is actually a pretty easy listen. He's got an awesome documentary on stress on the National Geographic channel. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, like uh, inflammation, stress. Um, how, how does that mechanism work, and, and why are so many people today kind of uh, hooked in that loop?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, you just mentioned the, the best go-to source there is, really, for that's and that's Sapolsky, and uh, really, what you, what it comes down to is just our biology. It's just it's how we're designed. We're designed to cope with the environment that we're in, and the way that we do that is through our autonomic nervous system, which has two branches. You know, the, the sympathetic, which drives energy production and is designed to really help in periods of high levels of stress. So, if you're an animal in the wild, and you need to catch your prey, or if you're trying to avoid being prey yourself, you need to produce a lot of energy very quickly, and the sympathetic system designed to crank up energy production and make sure you can do that. And then the other side is the, the parasympathetic system, whose job is to put everything back. That's the rest and digest, and that's really the anabolic side, whereas the sympathetic is the catabolic side. It's designed to break things down. It's designed to uh, produce lots of energy, and unfortunately for us, it's it's pro-inflammatory. I guess not unfortunate. It's just the way the body designed, but... You know, during periods of high levels of stress, it's it's advantageous for our immune systems to be on heightened alert because in the wild, that's where we're going to need those heightened uh, alerts, our heightened awareness of, of uh, inflammation and pathogens and all those other sorts of things. So anytime our sympathetic system is turned on and our body perceives a need for increased energy, we're in an inherently inflammatory state. And you know, The problem is in modern society, you know, we don't live in the wild. We may not have to run from our predators or we don't have to run to the store. We can just drive there and get food, um, but we still perceive sympathetic stress in much the same way. And When we're sitting there stressed out over work or stressed out over family life or school or whatever the case may be, that sympathetic system is cranking on and it's, it's causing and supporting inflammation and, and really just that modern cycle of life stress from, like I said, school, family, financial work, everything else drives people into sympathetic states for large chunks of time and and ultimately that's why you see one out of every three people in this country and i not the only factor but it's really the biggest factor of why you see so many people in this country uh, literally one out of three are going to die of some cardiovascular related disease that's got an inflammatory component to it so it's you know it's obviously important in the wild and it keeps us alive biologically speaking to be here but at the same time it's a double-edged sword and when you do it for too too much too long you you know you get a stroke you get a heart attack you get something something else causing causing you to die prematurely and from factors you probably could have prevented.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, <clears throat> it's interesting because um, you know basically you know what you're saying in in layman's terms is we're basically designed to do low level manual labor all day, and then run from a bear like once or twice a month, and you either get eaten or you don't, and so we're running from a bear all the time. Our body can't tell the difference between us, you know, yelling at somebody in traffic and being chased by a bear, same response or being on your phone or having all sorts of this distress. So we now know everybody has this issue. You know, we can we can do some things. We can we can eat better food. You know, we can eat lots of omega threes. We can we can cut down on vegetable oils. We can you know people are eating massive amounts of refined sugar. I mean, that's a huge factor as well. And people aren't sleeping. Besides those things, like the dietary changes and the and the sleep. What can people do um, to help combat this?
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is, is literally just having a good aerobic engine, and that's one of the things that folks on the article was. There's been a lot of uh, you know, internet warriors trying to make the case that aerobic fitness you don't need it because high level endurance athletes have heart problems, which is you know a ridiculous example of like looking at race car drivers and say, oh, cars crash all the time, so you shouldn't drive your car. Uh, well, yeah, if you're racing your car on a track, of course problems are going to happen. And of course, car accidents happen, but it doesn't mean you don't drive your car. And the aerobic system, the aerobic engine has been really the only area of fitness proven time and time again in research to support longevity and life expectancy. And there's there's a, a really good review I posted on the blog where they looked at 11 different papers in relation to fitness and life expectancy, and they found that only aerobic endurance athletes had significant life extension, and I think the average was like four to eight years, um, greater than the average person, You know, whereas strength athletes and team four athletes Tended to show almost no difference between themselves and the average uh, person. So, you know, people again they want to think that the aerobic system isn't uh, you know, isn't the most important thing, but really all the research we have, everything we have, shows you that it actually is the most important thing if you care about your health and wellness and
0: yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're not telling everyone else to go out and be a marathon runner. I mean, obviously, when you take things to extreme on either you know on either side, like for myself, you know, when I was a powerlifter, I started off with a fairly good level of GPP, I did a lot of sled dragging. And then as I get, went up in weight classes, I stopped doing all that stuff. And then I started doing stimulants and all that kind of stuff. And I let my GPP level go down and then ended up with inflammation, you know, besides working, you know, 14, 16 hours a day and not sleeping. then ended up with, luckily I ended up with inflammatory bowel disease and I didn't have a heart attack. Um, you know, but obviously you're not telling everyone out to, you know, to go out and, and, um, and be a marathon runner. Um, but you know, what does that look like? What is, what is, uh, you know, we, there's obviously other ways you can get in shape besides pounding the pavement. You know, what does that look like for the average person, um, for what they should be doing for like an aerobic and a decent aerobic level?
1: Yeah. I mean, the average person really just needs a a baseline and the simplest way for people to see they've got that is looking at either resting heart rate and or HRV and HRV is a very good coordinator of aerobic fitness and life expectancy. So if someone's, Resting heart rate, you know, depending on their ages, in the you know low to mid 50s, chances are they've got a sufficient level of aerobic fitness. And again, like I, like you said, I'm not telling people to go out there and and run marathons and get their heart rates into the 30s and 40s. I think they're going to be, you know, doing the Tour de France anytime soon. <laughs> um, but most people most people need to be just consistently doing some form of aerobic exercise, whether it's uh, what I call the cardiac output method, or people think of as long foot distance. Um, Although I suggest doing it more of a low impact variety type style, circuit type style. So we'll have people do, you know, maybe five minutes walking up the hill, maybe five minutes on a bike, five minutes on the rower, hop on the first climber for five minutes. I mean, sled dragging, medicine balls. I mean, it doesn't have to be this traditional thought process of long, slow, same thing over and over again. And most people aren't going to do that. But just breaking things up three to five minute circuits on different sort of low impact, um, you know, like I said, exercises is really the way to go. Or swimming. You know, I go out in the winter time or summertime and ride my bike everywhere. Just people just need to be consistently active. You know, even if it's 20 to 30 minutes a day of doing yep. some sort of lower intensity, you know, maybe, maybe some tempo intervals, but just moving and being active and getting the aerobic system going and then maybe one to two days a week at most of, of doing some higher intensity work and short periods for, you know, 15, maybe 25 minutes. It doesn't, you know, people have this idea that aerobic fitness needs to be high intensity intervals and they need to you know, kill themselves and, you know, as the point of the article, a lot of times you're actually creating more inflammation than you're yes. you're protecting against because that's that high all the high intensity work is in, is incredibly stressful, obviously, and that's a sympathetic inflammatory condition. So, you know, again people people have the misconstrued notion that they can use exercise to, you know, combat their stress by just pounding themselves to the ground when realistically it's just adding fuel to the fire and it's amplifying the inflammation they've already got rather than, you know, protecting yep. their body from it. So like I said, four to five days a week, and just being active and doing some low-level, you know, 20-30 minutes, whatever they can get in. Even if that's just, you know, going for a 20-minute walk up a hill, or it's jumping on the bike for 10 minutes and then rowing for 10 minutes, whatever the case may be, just getting that work in consistently. And then, you know, once or twice a week, uh, you know, you can throw in some higher-intensity work there. And for most people, that's that's all they need to do that. Yep. And then you put a solid strength training program behind it, and and really, you're you're going to be uh, doing 99% of of what you need to be.
0: Yeah, the the people I've had for you know since 2001, that I'm I've had a number of people that have been with me th- since then, and 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 this, and I've always said the key to success is lift twice a week, do a short finisher at the end, and then walk every day. You know, and I, I tell people all the time like you can't come into my gym, bust your, you know, come in here and think you're going to bust your ass, and then sit on your butt all day and think that you know you're going to get benefit from that. I mean, you might have some benefit with like you know. Uh, insulin sensitivity and stuff but you need to move every day like that's what we're designed to do and yeah, um you know people you know and, and i think you know you're talking about be you know doing some conditioning where you can talk right you know you're not like huffing and puffing and and um and and breathing like crazy yeah
1: i mean most most of it uh, in The articles I might talk about this important is again you're maybe not you don't necessarily want to train to perform a marathon but if you look at the training for, you know, the the best endurance athletes out there. They've done a lot of research in this area and they found that almost invariably they spend about eighty percent of their time at lower intensities and Correct. only about twenty percent of their time at higher intensities. And that's a good rule of thumb. Yes. That most people will be well off serving and it's it's unfortunately the exact opposite of what most yes. people do now is they think they think that eighty the percent time they should be killing themselves and twenty percent of the time they should be taking it easy and it's it's completely backwards from what we know actually increases aerobic fitness.
0: And yeah, or is, it, I mean it goes the same for strength training, gymnastics. I mean 70, 80% of what you do sets you up for that 20%. And uh, yep, pe- people exactly. don't understand that. And I think it's even worse today because, you know, now kids don't play outside anymore. Like when I grew up, we were riding our bikes and playing outside and playing tag and doing all sorts of things, working on farms. And so we built that aerobic base, we built that capacity to handle stress. Like that's how animals in the wild do it. And now we've got this whole society of people that don't have that base level of preparedness in order to handle a stressor. And then they go into a gym and they get thrown into a meat grinder and they end up getting worse. What, what are the consequences of going down that, what you'd call, glycolytic pathway or doing too much of, like, that high-intensity work? Like, what's the long-term, um, what's going to happen to somebody who's doing that high-intensity stuff over a long period of time without doing enough well, I mean, recovery work?
1: I, mean, I think you see the effects of it. I mean, number one, you see a lot of athletes prematurely have joint problems and arthritis and just all kinds of problems, and the, and the, the biggest thing that leads to is just they don't want to get out and move when they get older they don't want to be active they want to just yeah. you know let themselves go worse because it hurts because they have low back problems because they have knee problems because they have shoulder problems and they just beat themselves up so thoroughly when they're younger uh that it takes a toll on them and then they get to the age where they really really need to be moving and they just don't have the desire the capacity to do it without injuring themselves so then then you just can you go down that that spiral of of worse shape and less movement and then less shape leads to or less movement leads to worse shape and again it's just a it's a spiral, so it's important, especially with. You know, I would say that you got either kids spending all their days on social media and not being active at all in video games, or you have kids that are playing the same sport twelve months out of the year and beat themselves up just the same. So it's you know it's important to realize for the youth of the, the youth future to you know, increase the capacity of movement by doing more than one sport, by taking it easy for parts of the year, by being more well rounded, and and either option of just sitting on the couch playing video games or playing soccer for 12 months out of the year, and either one of those approaches are going to set the kids up for long-term success.
0: Absolutely. You know, I I have rest more written on the back of our gym t-shirts, and a lot of people get confused by that. They think that resting is sitting on your ass on the couch watching TV, but that's not the case. It's, you know, it's walking. It's maybe doing Tai Chi. It's, you know, meditation. It's float tank. It's, you know, good nutrition. And so you can train hard if you have to or if you need to or if you want to. So I think a lot of people get confused. They think if they're not killing themselves, they're being lazy. But, you know, it's all about preparing yourself, working in, I call it, or Paul Check called it, so you can work out when you want to. Um, you, you think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of, of, like, your protocol is that, you know, you you people are just saying, hey, you know, just go out there and, and run in a straight line? And and, and, and you know, they overlook the fact that you're basically picking people apart and looking at where they're weak and then working on their weak areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think people have a lot of misconceptions about what needs to be done, and that's definitely one of them. I and mean, the more you can get people moving, the more variety you can include, the more types of training you can do, especially next to the younger ages, the better off they're going to be. And you know, I think you've got to start with the basics and then personalize and go from there.
0: Talk about how someone can use, you know. I've been using your HRV stuff for a long time, and I think you just went to like a a much like a, didn't you go to a finger uh, sensor?
1: Your- Here yeah, I mean, we We started using a finger sensor, so you can get either a chest strap or a finger sensor to get your HRV every morning. And, and really, what it's, it's doing, um, you know, is, is literally looking at the autonomic function, it's looking at that balance between the sympathetic stress and the, the parasympathetic recovery. And you can see yourself spiraling downhill. You can see the impact of not sleeping. You can see the impact of work stress. Yeah, it's just a really good way for people to actually see visually what they're doing themselves. And it's easier to say, "Oh, I feel fine," but you can't. Yeah. you can't fool the system. You can't. Your physiology doesn't get fooled by what you think you feel like. It, it tells you the true story of, of what you're doing. And you know, the, the first thing people realize is just how much an impact things outside the gym have on them. Because you know, working out an hour a day or hour and a half a day or whatever the case may be but life is the other 90 percent and being stressed out in life is going to have a much greater impact on most people than than whatever they do in the gym or don't do so people quickly realize just how important it is to take care of themselves not just in the gym but outside the gym as well
0: yeah i tell that to people constantly during orientation especially women i'm like what you do in here is totally dependent on what you do outside the gym like i've got you two or three hours a week how, how much success you have in here is totally dependent on what happens outside the gym with your nutrition, your relaxation, all that kind of stuff. If you're running around with a chicken with your head cut off <clears throat> and then you come in here and try and train hard, uh, it's not going to work. And, and, and for people like myself, I, I, it, your, your HRV app um, showed me like, oh, dude, like you're like in the 50s, you know, uh, like on a readiness score and you're orange and red all the time. You know, I, I, I'm so good at driving through stuff. You know, I have such a strong will that I can just drive through that, and then I end up sick or burned out or injured or whatever else. So if, for people that are, like, super type A, it's a great tool to basically see, hey, this is my tachometer or my car, this is what the reading is, and I need to, like, you know, do some things to get my body in a better place so it can handle stress. I know you have a, have a course, like a conditioning-type course that you do. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so the last couple of years, I just literally spent time traveling all over the U.S., all over the world, and you know, Australia and Ireland and U.K. and Japan. You know, and just really getting out there and, and teaching conditioning and, and how to approach it properly. You know, what does it really mean to to improve conditioning? What, how do we even measure it? And what methods should we use? What methods should we not use? All that sort of stuff. And uh, really, I just wanted to have a way to number one, get it out there to more people so they could benefit from it. Number two. You know, I basically found that two days of talking about stuff really wasn't enough that you know, I was leaving and there were still a lot of unanswered questions I couldn't get to. So I shot the whole thing and added some about 20% more content, put it online, made it more of a self-study course, kind of the precision nutrition model where you can go through the videos you want to and you get a big workbook. Um, and we ended up with 55 videos, I think it's 12 or 13 hours of material and 300-page workbook. And it really just goes through every area of conditioning. You know, Like I said, how to assess it, uh, how to write program for team sports for combat sports for your average public you know average joe public who just wants to look and feel their best and and live long and and really it's just a to z conditioning uh, everything you need to know about it and took that put it all online and we're opening that uh, monday november 14th for about four days and we'll close it down on thursday and then to spend the next few months supporting it answering the questions and and really just getting those coaches that Signed up for the course, dialed in, and then we'll we'll offer it again some point next year. But uh, it's really the best course out there as far as I'm concerned. And there's really actually there's not a whole lot out there in terms of finishing courses. There's lots of articles, there's lots of you know, misinformation, I'd say probably more than anything else.
0: Lots of propaganda. But this is really,
1: yeah, lots of <laughs> propaganda, exactly. But this just is do, literally my entire career.
0: Just do Tabatas.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean this is literally the last fifteen years of my career of studying conditioning and seeing it from the inside out and working with high level fighters and Microsoft executives and housewives and everyone in between yeah. really and, and building the system because that's what most people are lacking. It's you know an actual system of how do I create a conditioning program and how do I fit that conditioning program within the broader picture of you know the entire training program that they're you're delivering if you're a coach or, or a trainer. So you know I'm really proud of it. So it came out, it's a ton of material. It's it's twelve plus hours, you know, I think thirteen maybe somewhere in there. So there's there's a lot of a lot of information there. A lot about how this mine stress, you know, body, environment, connection plays out and, and ultimately the, I put the course together to teach people just very simply how do you build a system to write conditioning programs. The practical aspects I think are the most important and that's where I want people to get out the courses to, to walk away with the confidence knowing that whoever they're working with, whatever goals the clients or athletes might have that they feel 100% confident they can write them an effective conditioning program and they can uh, get the results that, that people are coming to them for and they can actually deliver those
0: absolutely would you talk a little bit about that we talked about that tabata and we'll have a link to your um to your course in in the podcast but you talk a little bit about that tabata study and the flaws in it i know you've talked about that before but uh you know yeah yeah, sure
1: it's it's an interesting study i mean people again people are very um they're, they're looking for a fast shortcut right they're always looking for what's the easiest way from a to b and the problem is the Tabata study and lots of other high-intensity studies out there—they're they're very short time periods. And I think the Tabata study was six weeks, and it was uh, seven. Number one, the sample size was very small. There was there were seven people in the in the Tabata group and seven people in the, in the lower intensity group. And what they looked at was VO2 max, so change in aerobic fitness from VO2, and they looked at some changes in anaerobic uh, function, which of course you weren't going to see in the lower intensity group. And so all they really did was took Took the higher-intensity group, had them do very short, high-intensity exercise. Uh, Took the lower-intensity group and had them do much more low- to moderate-intensity exercise for much longer uh, periods of time. I think they were 40 or 60 minutes. I can't remember the exact duration, whereas the Tabata group was 8 minutes or whatever it was. And the interesting thing was everybody wants to point out, well, the Tabata group got better results because their VO2 max has increased better. Well, first of all, the problem with the study was the average VO2 max of the people in the studies or like in the low 50s or upper 40s even, which is a very, very low level of fitness right. to begin with.
0: Anything's going <laughs> to make it better. Anything's going to make
1: it better, exactly. And the,
0: the, the Tabata group
1: uh, started with lower VO2 maxes, so the, the Tabata group actually started in worse shape than the people that did the lower-intensity stuff. So you're going to get better results, again, if you're starting from a lower position to begin with. But the other thing that people don't talk about is that the Tabata group did actually include lower-intensity training, and quite a bit of it, actually, they did, uh, I believe like a 10 or 20 minute warm up and cool down period. And they did once a week of 40 minutes of low intensity training. So the funny thing was, I actually added up the amount of training that the lower intensity or that the Tabata group did. And it was about three or four times the amount of higher intensity work that they did. So this misconception of, oh, it's purely high intensity versus lower intensity. No, it really wasn't. It was more about, hey, you know, do you do a bunch of low intensity and then add some high intensity in? Is that going to get better results? Or is doing all low intensity to get results? And clearly there's going be some benefit to increasing. Uh, by throwing in some higher intensity but people just saw the results oh, you know, four minutes a day or eight minutes a day right. got better results than 40 minutes so it's 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 nonsense. And the other thing is uh, if you actually look at the changes in VO2 max, it only increased for three weeks in the Tabata study so the first three weeks they saw improvements second three weeks they completely plateaued the group that did lower intensity saw a steady improvement in VO2 max over the entire six weeks and actually since it started higher they even ended up higher in VO2 than the, the Tabata group but Again, you know, you're talking seven people in each study, and you're talking about a group, and no, no group in that study did pure high intensity work. But even the Tabata group did a fair amount of low intensity training just as part of the whole process. So, you know, people want to jump on headlines. Everybody wants to think you can get the same results in four minutes a day, you know, that you can in 40 minutes. But the reality is, you know, you need low intensity work, and sure, you need some higher intensity. It's the 80/20 rule. So, if you look at the Tabata group, it probably was closer to 80/20 than. People would like to think it wasn't just all high intensity, and so um, I think it just it just shows you can't just take a, a headline on face value. You have to look at what the research actually showed that produced it, and, and you got to consider the source. And you know, there, there's there's definitely something to be said for high intensity work. It's it's definitely a part of it. It's it's uh, going to contribute, but making your program 80% high intensity is going to lead. To inflammation, it's going to lead eventually to overtraining. It's going to lead to injuries, and it's it's definitely not going to be
0: and burnout. I mean, I mean, look at the number of MMA guys and powerlifters and you know high-level like high you know high go sports that that just crash and burn. Or I see it all the time. I get majority of the women I get in here are women that were doing you know 5:30 a.m. boot camps, you know, three or four times a week, and they did it for a year, and they lost some weight, and then all of a sudden they started gaining weight, and then they just couldn't get out of bed in the morning anymore without drinking a cup, of, like a whole pot of coffee. You know, so, yeah. you know, you can only drive that car so hard for so long.
1: Yeah, sooner soon as late, the wheels are going to come off. And that's, you know, it's unfortunately, it's just a mentality of, of looking for the short term shortcut. You know, and you keep looking hard enough for that shortcut and you're going to, what you can do is shortcut the long term results and you're going to end up worse off than where you started. So the biggest thing I, you know, talk about narco and distress is consistency trumps intensity every single time. Absolutely. Being consistent and being healthy and being able to move and being able to get in the gym and being able to do these things consistently day in and day out is far more important than if you can kill yourself, you know,
0: I I, I try to explain that. that. I try to explain that to parents all the time. I'm like, I'm trying to keep your kid healthy so they can play, (laughs) you know, like, like that's (laughs) my number one concern is keeping them on the field so they can continue to play their sport. And, you know, hopefully they're smart enough to you know get their kids in different sports and stuff but it's like if they're not on the field playing or if they're not taking a break or developing some strength or power or whatever else i mean it doesn't matter if you you know train the kid like a maniac for four months and they get super good and then they're hurt for you know they can't they can't play for three or four months i mean that's just asinine but unfortunately that's the kind of attitude that they have today i think the biggest the biggest example of that is like the Biggest Loser.
1: Oh yeah, so. exactly. It's just, uh, it's just unfortunate fact of life, you know. The the people that sprint for the finish line end up not even finishing the race.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about um, where people can find you, and some of the things you got going on besides your nutrition course. If there's anything else you've got going on in the near future.
1: I was conditioning of course, not, not nutrition. That's not my area, but 8weeksout.com. Uh, yeah, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I know how it goes. Um, so eightweeksout.com is really just where to find me. I've got tons of articles, got lots of videos. Uh, you can find the certification on there. You know, again, which is which is only going to be open November 14th through 17th, but you can get all the information you want about that. Um, and like I said, we post regular content in there. You can go to our Facebook group, which is just uh, 8 out on Facebook as well, and we keep everyone up to date on the facebook group group but really just you know search it for eight weeks out or just go to eight weeks out number eight weeks out.com is is by far the easiest place to see what we've got going on
0: awesome well joel i really appreciate you coming on um you know look for that course joel's information is fantastic it's very thorough but it's also at the same time he takes very complicated things and makes them very simple and understandable uh, which is which is vital because you have to be able to not only understand it yourself as a coach, but you have to be able to relay that to your athletes in a way that they understand. Like your athlete is not a scientist, you know, so they have to be able to get these concepts and understand them and buy into them. So getting educated in a way that's practical is, is very important for that. Um, just to let people know, I started posting on my blog again. My blog is jim-laird.blogspot.com. Um, so I've started posting things on there. I have, uh, an Amazon store on there. Joel's book, MMA, ultimate MMA conditioning book is on there. If you want to check that out, I've also got a bunch of different products. If you want to, uh, educate yourself of stuff that I think is fantastic. So thanks for listening. And once again, um, I appreciate Kiefer allowing me to do a podcast on his, uh, on his website. So continue to support Kiefer and his endeavors so I can continue to do this. And we will talk to you again on the next edition of The Jim Laird Show on Body.io FM.
1: You've been listening to The Jim Laird Show with your host, Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to Body.io. Don't miss the next episode of The Jim Laird Show when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.